Good evening and welcome to Upbeat Live. I am Veronica Krausis. Um, they're not giving programs out for these Upbeat Lives anymore, but if, I think um, bios and information is up on the LA Phil website if you, if you, if you care to Google it. Um, I'm a composer, I teach at USC, and I've been doing these for a lot of years and it's really nice to be back in live, in live with, with actual people. I know, isn't it great? And across the street, those buildings, those crazy, wonderful buildings that went up, I just saw them. There was nothing there last time I was here. Wow. Anyway, on to music. Tonight's concert is Casual Friday, and it runs without intermission. There will only be two pieces, one by Elgar and one by Tchaikovsky. And after the concert, there's a, a, a short talk back with two of the, well, the, the maestro and the cello um, soloist from the Elgar um, Cello Concerto. So you can definitely stay afterwards for that. So just to get us in the mood, That, of course, is the, um, the second half of a march in D major by Edward, uh, Edward, Edward, I can't say Edward, Edward Elgar, better known as Pomp and Circumstances. And it's terribly British, it's very full of pomp, and it's also very, very well known. There is an English author who is a composer and a critic, Anthony Burgess, and he said of Elgar's music, I know that Elgar is not manic enough to be Russian, He's not witty enough to be French, not harmonically simple enough to be Italian, and not stodgy enough to be German. We arrive at his Englishry by pure elimination. <laughs> it's not quite fair, but it's kind of funny. So Elgar was one of the first English composers in more than 200 years to achieve worldwide sort of international recognition. And it was at the end of the 19th century and there wasn't really a distinctive English national style. Composers seemed to adopt more the international European Western um, universal language from, that had built up from the classical tradition. And Elgar's music, of course, was like that, greatly influenced by Brahms and Wagner. And he didn't really include any folk music in his, in his works, in his you know, concert works. He was born in 1857 at the height of the Romantic movement. And Romanticism, of course, focuses on emotion and individuality and an idealization of nature. And so just to give you a little bit of historical context, while this beautiful, lush, romantic music was going on, um, Elgar was born in the same year that Otis elevators were first installed in New York. The world's first football or soccer team was founded in Sheffield, England, and Queen Victoria was reigning supreme. So it just it gives a, a bit more of an interesting context with the whole idea of romantic music. He was one of the first composers to take the gramophone seriously, and in the early 1900s, he conducted a whole bunch of series of acoustic recordings using a, a, a new kind of microphone, a moving coil microphone, um, that more accurate, accurately recorded sound quality. So he re-recorded all of his works with that technology. He was fourth of seven children, and he definitely grew up in a musical household. His father was a, pro a professional violinist and a piano tuner. 
what a combo. Um, young Edward was sometimes taken along with his father so that his dad could show off his musical abilities. And likewise, his mother encouraged his musical development and he, she instilled in him a love of literature and also a great love of the countryside. Elgar was an expert violinist and he taught himself music theory by studying the scores of Bach and Beethoven. He left uh, school at 14 and he went to work at um, work as an office boy, but he quit after about a year and just started teaching violin and piano. Every penny he saved, he used to travel back and forth to London to take violin and composition lessons. He also had another job. It was at the Worcester and Co County Lunatic Asylum. <laughs> the director there believed that music had recuperative powers, so he formed a band, and this band would pay, play for the patients. And of course, Elgar became the band leader, and a lot of his early works got performances to a, probably a very appreciative audience. So when Elgar was 29, he took on a new pupil, Carolyn Alice Roberts, and she was known as Alice, and guess what? He married her three years later. Um, this didn't go down so well with her family. She was disinherited. They were not happy that she was marrying um, an unknown musician. She was a little bit more upper crusty. And he worked in a shop. And also, horror of all horrors, he was a Roman Catholic in England. So regardless, they had a happy marriage. And, and from then until her death, she acted as his business manager, his social secretary, dealt with his mood swings, and was actually a really perceptive music critic. Elgar's career took off, and this included being knighted at Buckingham Palace in 1904. Throughout his musical career, he was also a keen amateur chemist, and he had a laboratory set up in the backyard. His wife kicked him out of the house because it was too smelly. So he even patented the Elgar sulfurated hydrogen apparatus in 1908, and it was in fact used, it was in production for a while. So just in case there are some chemists in the audience, it was a device for synthesizing hydrogen sulfide, um, and I'm not sure what that does, but we can Google that later. But it, it's interesting, his, his various um, interests. Um, one of his favorite pranks was he would make this concoction of phosphorus that would spontaneously combust. And one time he actually left too much of it sitting in the rain and it exploded and sort of blew up half the backyard and one of the neighbors came running. And I, I just wonder, what did, how popular was he with his neighbors? The music, the blowing up things, I don't know. <laughs> the fa his family also had a white Angora rabbit. And the rabbit's name was Peter, of course, in, in honor of the Beatrix Potter books. But after the family took a trip to Italy, the rabbit was renamed as Pietro d'Alba. And Pietro became Elgar's confidant and advisor and alter ego who would offer critiques of his new works. And he even received credit on some of Elgar's folk song arrangements. So these weren't included in his concert music, but you know, there was Pietro. We all need our, our alter egos. He also enjoyed football, and he supported the Wolverhampton Wanderers Football Club, for who he composed an anthem that's called, He Banged the Leather for Goal. 
So it's considered one of the first football anthems. Elgar passed away in 1934 at the age of 77 from colon cancer. And at the time, he told his doctor that he had no faith in the afterlife. He said, I believe there is nothing but complete oblivion. But regardless, his music has um, stayed with us, and he's considered a national treasure in England. And his image was actually on the 20-pound note for many years. Recently, I've been reading, or I finished reading a book by Adam Grant called The Originals, How Nonconformists Move the World. I highly recommend it. It's, it's a fascinating book. And as a music professor, I will often say how beneficial it is to get things done early, to be on time, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I think some of my students are here laughing at me. And <laughs> but in the fourth chapter of his book, um, it's called Fools Rush In. He talks about timing, procrastination, and what he terms first mover disadvantage. So he proposes that procrastination might be conducive to creativity. And the example he gives is Martin Luther King. And he talks about King's speech for the March on Washington, which of course has become this, you know, one of the most important speeches. And King knew two months in advance he would be giving this speech. And his wife apparently said he didn't start writing it till the night before. And that, that idea that this brilliance and creativity comes at, at the very last minute when you're, when you're forced into it. So the author then says, yes, there are advantages to speed, and even states that sort of saying, the early bird gets the worm, which is great. But then he points out, it's the early worm that gets caught. <laughs> so it's a fascinating read about delay, avoidance, and the benefit of procrastination. Now, you're probably wondering, why is she talking about this? Because cellists for years had been bugging Elgar to write a cello concerto. In 1900, he agreed to write a concerto for the cellist Carl Fuchs. Three years later, the request was repeated in person, and I think three years after that, a letter was sent, and still, no cello concerto. So it was actually in 1918 that he wrote the darn thing. And by that time, the cello concerto became one of his last major works. In that year, 1918, he was undergoing an operation in London for an infected tonsil. So he was um, about 61 years old, which was at that point considered a bit dangerous operation. But afterwards, he regained consciousness. He came out of the sedation, and he asked for a pencil and paper. And he wrote down the melody that would become the first theme in the concerto. So now, if Elgar hadn't procrastinated for those 20 years, I wonder if he would have written such a sublime work. Who knows? <laughs> so the concerto was composed just after the First World War, and it had a disastrous premiere with Elgar actually conducting the London Symphony Orchestra. And that was because he wasn't given enough rehearsal time. So it just, the performance was kind of a, a dud. Um, but by the time in the 1920s that his music, by then, his music had started to fall out of fashion a little bit. And it was only in the 1970s after his death that um, there was a resurgence of interest in Elgar's music. And it was when performers like Jacqueline Dupré started playing his cello concerto. And since then, you know, many wonderful cellists have performed and recorded it. Pablo Casals, Yo-Yo Ma. Tonight's concert features the Franco-Belgian soloist Camille Thomas, 
who is one of the first cellists to be signed by Deutsche Grammophon in, is it 40 years? She's, she's a marvelous, amazing performer. And um, it's interesting, she describes a passion for life and a desire to inspire others to open their hearts to the wonder and emotion of classical music. She strongly believes that music has the power to enlarge the heart, to make you feel everything with more intensity, and that music gives hope for the beauty and the greatness of the human soul. So you'll also hear her performing on the Feuerman Stradivarius from 1730. And it's um, also called de Münchstrad or de Münchfeuermannstrad, etc. because those were two of the really famous performers who had owned it at different times in history. The British cellist Stephen Isserlis has described this instrument as his dream cello. It has everything. So it'll be exciting to see it and hear it in person. So the cello concerto itself, it has four movements. And the first movement is in a sort of a three-part form. And there's a, it opens with the solo cello doing a recitative, or this sort of like improvisatory-like passage. And there are a lot of these improvisatory-like passages scattered through the whole concerto. Um, the opening is very somber and thoughtful, and what you'll hear is it leading into the main theme um, with the violas. This is a, a note. I'm using a recording by Jacqueline Dupre, just because. It's a live recording. You heard someone coughing there. So Elgar considered this tune post-surgery uh, to be his own tune. And he said to a friend of his, even if he was dead, if someone heard that tune being whistled on the Malvern Hills, not to be scared, it would just be him. So the, the middle section has another lyrical theme by the cello. And this first movement goes straight into the, the second movement, which again starts with the cello doing this solo, solo recitative. Um, it, it's a little more fast and scurrying. That's not it. This is it. starts and ends with another lush and lyrical melody. And the last movement has a lot of energy 
to then pause for the nobility and the stateliness of the cello. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful, lovely, intimate concerto. The cellist Rostropovich said that he stayed away from this concerto because he thought the piece, he thought of the piece as, as somewhat naive, not in a bad way, but he said that the theme from the slow movement sounds like it's about first love. So that I think it's more appropriate for a young person. My pupil in Jacqueline Dupré played it much better than I because I didn't have the fresh perspective that a piece like that requires. It's really simple, intimate work, and I was listening to a couple of different recordings on YouTube, including one by Yo-Yo Ma, which was spectacular, but I happened to just sort of glance down at the comments that people were putting, and I'd like to share two of them with you. One was, from the bottom of my heart, I thank Elgar for this music. He'll never know how many listeners he touched, which is, as a composer, that's profound uh, compliment. Then there was this other one, that opening should be a Schedule One drug. <laughs> and I, I think Elgar would have been pleased by both comments. So just um, as for Elgar and England, Tchaikovsky over in Russia became the first Russian composer to achieve international fame. In fact, the other thing that the both pieces on tonight's concert have in common is that they were the last major works of each of the composers. Tchaikovsky was born into a large middle-class family in provincial Russia in 1840, and he originally studied law in St. Petersburg and became a civil servant. Like many Russian composers, he sort of arrived at music sort of by a circuitous route. He was a lawyer by, tw by 21, but then returned because of his passion for music. And he ended up studying privately and eventually left uh, his job to concentrate on music full time. He was studying with Anton Rubinstein at the St. Petersburg Conservatory. And once he completed his studies there, he moved to Moscow and then taught at the conservatory there. So at that time in, in Russian history, there were sort of two opposing forces or factors, let's say, at work in art and music. One was the sort of international European shtick. And then the other one was the sort of nationalistic thing. And since the beginning of the 18th century in the reign of Peter the Great, who was bringing in all sorts of Western um, influences, the music and the arts weren't really having their own distinction. It was more of a Westernization. And Tchaikovsky's music was sort of part of that, um, that um, style. But as in most Eastern European countries, that nationalistic, uh, nationalistic um, style and, and striving for individuality was really coming to the fore. So think about Dvorak and Janáček in the Czech Republic, or Grieg in Norway, or Sibelius in, in Finland. So in Russia, it was mostly um, stemming from a, a, a desire to have a national operatic style. And it was a style that was proper for the Russian languages and its folk tales. And from 1850 onwards, uh, this act nationalistic activity was centered in St. Petersburg around a group of five composers known as Kuchka, or the Mighty Handful, or just the five. Now, Tchaikovsky was on the periphery of this. He kind of knew all the guys, you know, if all composers know each other, they sniff around, you know, sort of thing. But um, he wasn't an official member of their um, group. 
He did use sort of Russian folk songs and stylistic influences, but they weren't really organic to that sort of nationalist cause, uh, as you would find in a composer like Mussorgsky, for instance. So like Elgar, both of them were much more that international or European type of romantic music. Um, he wrote operas, he wrote symphonies, he wrote light salon works, wrote operas, ballets. He was, he was a crazy, wonderful composer. And um, in this way, um, he was not only a composer, but he was a conductor and he toured not only Europe, but the Eastern states. So in this way, and it was decades before YouTube and Apple Music and all that, that his works, particularly for orchestra, achieved a much wider audience simply because he was traveling and conducting them in, in person, more so than any other Russian composer um, at that time. So he wrote six symphonies that spanned his career, and in these works he struggled with um, things that he felt were demands that they were opposite. So for instance, um, his formal training in conservatory, formal traditions, how does he maintain those with his own desire for emotion and expressive events and, and sort of the romanticism. He acknowledged some criticism he had received as a younger composer and said, there is frequently padding in my works. To an experienced eye, the sh stitches show in my seams. Sort of this episodic character in the music he's, is, is much more typical to opera. He wrote 10 operas, I think. So he later tried to offset this in his later symphonies by reusing motives to make sort of more of a cyclical nature in pieces. Critics and audiences fluctuated. You know, at first his music was highly acclaimed, and then it was vulgar and obscenely passionate. And then again, he was in again. So it, it's constant, constantly shifting. Tchaikovsky's personal life is both fascinating and a really tragic story. He was a homosexual, and because of social norms at the time, he attempted to create a normal facade by um, entering into a marriage of convenience with one of his students. Even though it was platonic, the stress of the union was unbearable for Tchaikovsky, and he kind of bailed after two months, and he never saw his wife again. And so after that fiasco, it's ironic that one of Tchaikovsky's most important relationships was with another woman. And it was a wealthy, wealthy widow who was an ardent admirer of his music, Madame von Meck. And she became his patron and financial supporter for about 15 years. And they agreed never to meet. They had a very contemporary relationship. Um, it was one through letters. So think Facebook. How many people on Facebook do you actually have never met? So exactly the same. And they were, they were a little cuckoo in terms of staying away from each other. So when they were traveling, they would share their itineraries so they both wouldn't end up in Paris or something at the same time and have to meet. Or if he was staying at her country's estate, her schedule would be given so that he wouldn't cross her path in, in, in his wanderings around the estate. So the truth surrounding Tchaikovsky's death is very mysterious. The official version is that he died from cholera poisoning in, in, from drinking dirty water. Um, the unofficial version revolves around a sexual scandal. And so apparently in high society um, in Russia at the time, public exposure of these sorts of things would not happen. So an honor court was set up and deemed the appropriate punishments. And the story goes he was found guilty and for his indiscretion and sentenced to death and he poisoned himself. So 
I don't know which one's correct, but both have been noted, um, talked about quite a bit in literature. So this evening we'll hear Tchaikovsky's sixth and final completed symphony known as the Pathétique Symphony. It was written in 1893 and premiered in October of that year. Tchaikovsky conducted the first performance in St. Petersburg, and then nine days later, he died. So initially, uh, Tchaikovsky wanted to call it a program symphony, but he didn't want to share the program with anyone, so that was kind of Nick's, that idea. Then he just thought to call it symphony number six, and then he thought, oh no, that's too boring. And then he sent it to his publisher with instructions, just call it symphony, Sixth Symphony in B minor, dedicated to his nephew. So that was how it was premiered, as a Sixth Symphony in B minor. His brother then suggested to him a Russian word, and if anyone speaks Russian here, you can correct me, because I'm sure you'll have to. Patetichetskaya. No? Okay. Okay, boom. Okay, I wasn't that bad off. Farah, thank you. <laughs> anyway, it means passionate or emotional. And he loved the word and the whole idea of it and gave that sort of as the subtitle to the, to the work. Um, however, it was mistranslated into French as pathétique, which means solemn or emotive, which is not quite the same meaning. But it, pathétique was used at the first posthumous performance nine days after he died, and, or three weeks later, it was after he died, um, and it just stuck, so everyone just calls it the pathétique. Suicide theories about Tchaikovsky were, of course, fueled by the symphony, especially with its um, uh, interesting uh, last movement that instead of having a boisterous grand finale, it just dies away. And then, so everyone was listening for indications in the music. Was it a suicide note? Was it, you know, was it an indicator of depression? Um, but however, while he was composing the work, he wrote an excited letter to his brother about he was fully occupied with the new work and how hard it was to tear himself away from, from it. He, and he thought it was one of the best works he'd ever written. And he declared, I must finish it as soon as possible for I have to wind up a lot of affairs. So of course, subsequent events really give a sort of sinister kind of note of prophecy to that last sentence that he wrote to his brother. <sighs> I remember in a documentary about Stravinsky, um, the Russian composer, he was talking about when he was a child, he had heard uh, the symphony in St. Petersburg with Tchaikovsky just before Tchaikovsky died. And in the documentary, he spoke Tchaikovsky with such reverence, and he talked about how the pathétique was always linked for him with death, so it wasn't allowed to be played in the house. So we'll be hearing the sixth symphony and his final symphony tonight. Um, its symphony is in four movements. The first movement starts and ends quietly. And it's in um, sonata form. So basically sonata form is you have two different ideas that get presented, they get tossed around and wiggled around and all sorts of things happen. And by the end of the piece, you get the two ideas being presented again and politely recapitulated. Okay, just to throw in a musical term for you guys. <laughs> okay, so we, the movement starts slow and you get these kind of slow and creeping low bassoons, which is kind of cool. And then we'll hear the violas enter with the first theme. So violas were the first theme in Elgar, same thing here. I wonder if they coordinated that somehow on the astral plane. Okay, here we go.
The second theme in, in the sonata form combination is, is, is quite lyrical. And it's interesting that Tchaikovsky was very influenced by the current fashions in music in the salon and, and at dances. So most of his songs and his piano music show these kind of affinities, but it's also found in his concert music too, sort of that drawing room romance style. And it can definitely be heard in this um, second theme. outbursts and then the end brings back the sort of creeping bassoons which you didn't hear in the excerpts but you'll hear tonight and it, and then presents um, them not as creeping but as the as the blast at the end okay. now the second movement is a dance movement and it's a wonderful waltz and often gets called the limping waltz because it's not in three so if I were to ask you to come up and dance with me, we would be one, two, three, one, two, three, four, you know? And his waltz is in five, so think about trying to dance in five. One, two, three, four, five, one. It, it, so you get this really nice little um, offbeat, off-kilter thing. And it sort of harkens almost to the pleasant music of, of a lot of his ballets. So here's, here's a bit of that. by Nicholas Slonimsky called um, Lexicon of Musical Invective. It's hilarious. What it is, is it's a book that lists all the bad reviews that composers have received. It includes Beethoven, Debussy, Brahms, Tchaikovsky, everybody. And um, there's a quote about this movement um, from Edward Hanslick. So if you've heard of him, you know he was a very famous Austrian music critic and he was a really staunch supporter of absolute music, so music that did not have a program, so Brahms. And Tchaikovsky obviously isn't in that category, so of course we, we wouldn't expect a good review. But he said about this movement, the oddity in this work is the scherzo which goes through in 5-4 time. This disagreeable meter upsets both listener and player. It's a discomfort quite unnecessary. The movement can be uh, can, without the least inconvenience, be rearranged in 6-8. I don't know. I'm sure <laughs> Tchaikovsky would have had a few choice words for him. But, so. Oh, yes, it's Nicholas Slonimsky, the lexicon of musical invective. It, it's, it, they're really funny. So the third movement is, is really very, very energetic. It's upbeat and triumphant, boisterous. It's like a diabolical sort of thing. So here's a little taste of that.
final movement, uh, there's a main melody that keeps coming back, and it's quite melancholy. The interesting thing about this melody is, imagine you have, here's a melody, sort of one line, and what Tchaikovsky does with the orchestration, with the instrumentation, is he has one group of musicians, instruments, doing this note, another one doing this note, another doing this note, another doing this note. So on a recording, you can't really tell, but I think live, you'll get this kind of strange sort of spaciousness and sort of airy quality to it when, you, when, when we listen to it. So this is what it sounds like. There's a second theme that sort of suggests devotion and it contains a sort of like sob-like figure that, that started in the Baroque that kept getting used in music. And eventually there's a sort of a turbulent climax or two that have you know, subsequent breakdowns, let's call them. And at the end there's this, this cool section where you all of a sudden hear, I wonder if we can see it, the tam-tam, that big gong hanging there. So this, the tam-tam will signal um, or introduces a very somber funeral-like chorale that's done in the low brass. And um, this recording will not do it justice, but just to hopefully give you an idea. So it's sob-like, first of all. Again, no grand finale. Symphony closes with what uh, the music journalist Tom Service calls, described as private, intimate, and personal pain. Did you know that Tchaikovsky was a bibliophile? He, his personal library had about 1,200 books, and among them was an Italian language tome um, that included works of Euripides, and it was marked with the following text that Tchaikovsky wrote into the book. Stolen from the library of Palazzo Ducal in Venice on December 3rd, 1877 by Tchaikovsky, court counselor and professor of the conservatory. So he was a book thief too. Elgar was a bomb maker and Tchaikovsky was a book thief. <laughs> and in, I have a book which wasn't stolen. It's called Masters of the Orchestra. It's from 1954. And um, Tchaikovsky's music was so wonderfully described as brimming with warm humanity and restless drama with themes and feelings that are easy to grasp. The personal and intimate note is so strong in his music that we find it natural. He shares both joys and sorrows and with his music he takes us into his confidence and he shows us the secret places of his heart, which is so wonderful. So his music is it's, it's really going to be a treat tonight to hear it live. 
So after the concert, there's the talk back again here on stage with the current associate conductor of the LA Phil, uh, Chilean uh, Paolo Bortalignoli. I think I said his name right. And the cellist, Camille Thomas. So they'll be back here for um, a few questions if you, if you have anything you'd like to ask them. And um, I hope you enjoyed the concert. Thank you.